1: Bring in show music, please.
0: This is Squawk Pod, and I'm CNBC producer Cameron Costa. On today's episode, December's inflation data is out, down month over month for the first time since early 2020. And we're not mad about it. Edward James strategist Mona Mahajan.
2: We are moving in the right direction.
0: Big moves for Disney. A new chairman, a proxy fight looming, and activist Nelson Peltz vying for a board seat. It's drama in the House of Mouse. We're scoring Disney with New York Times columnist, Jim Stewart. The
1: board gets, in my view, a failing grade on the question of succession
0: calculators, Google, and now ChatGPT, the new AI that's taken classrooms by storm and why we should go with it. Yale lecturer and journalist, Joanne Lippmann.
3: All of these tools have turned into exactly that. Tools, resources, but not a substitute for learning.
0: Those stories, plus Starbucks workers back at the office and Tesla's China plans stalled.
1: We're like, what?
0: what? It's Thursday, January 12th, 2023, and Squawk Pod begins right now.
1: Stand Becky by in three, two, one, cue please.
2: Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We are live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. First
0: up on the podcast, Inflation. It was the word of 2022, but is it carrying into 2023? To find out, Wall Street, Main Street, Pennsylvania Avenue, well, everyone was watching the Labor Department this morning as it released the Consumer Price Index. The CPI measures a broad swath of goods and services, including, most of the time, food and energy prices. For December, consumer prices posted their biggest monthly decline since early in the pandemic, down one-tenth of a percent. Year-over-year, consumer prices rose 6.5%, without food and energy, only 5.7%. But still, that's the smallest annual increase in months. Standout metrics in this report, energy and housing. Energy prices are coming down, which is really good news because they were a part of the reason that inflation numbers were double digits months ago. Separately, housing and rents are still high in this particular report. But remember, the labor statistics are behind a month. The prices we're seeing in real life, in real time, take a month or two to be reflected in the reports. Edward James investment strategist Mona Mahajan was on our TV broadcast this morning.
2: Some of this good number, and we think it is a good number, has been priced into markets already, but keep in mind, um Expectations have come down. We are moving in the right direction. So our hope is that the trend does continue in this
0: direction. And in fact, we we see- Now, some economists might have hoped for a lower number than was reported to prove to the Federal Reserve that inflation's peak is officially behind us. Of course, CPI data is a big part of the Fed's calculus when deciding rate hike policy. So stay tuned for the next Fed meeting in early February.
4: We are watching shares of Tesla this morning. Here's what's happening. A Bloomberg report out just in the last hour now says that an expansion of Tesla's plan in Shanghai has been delayed. Tesla's plan calls for work to begin mid-year. That would double the plant's capacity to 2 million cars per year. The report, though, is saying that Chinese officials expressed concerns about the company's connections to Elon Musk's Starlink, which could allow users to bypass China's internet firewall yesterday. Bloomberg reported that Tesla was close to a preliminary deal to set up a factory in hmm. Indonesia. So the, the, the many, um, the octopus that is Elon Musk's many enterprises now, uh, in certain ways, complicating uh, things. Although this is
2: kind of what a lot of companies there are doing at this point, with Apple kind of slowly looking for ways to diversify uh, with China, too. It's what we were talking about yesterday, just this idea of maybe not being so reliant on having so much coming out of China.
5: Pretty cool.
4: You mean in terms of the yes, lots of people. But this this is this is using separate, this, yeah. this is using the the SpaceX piece yeah. to facilitate the internet right? of the cars, which is something you would think he would want to do from an integration perspective. I don't know how much of that was is an is an expectation to get away from China. I think think this for Elon, he wants to get into China yeah. Probably. even more.
5: Right? When you, when your combination of, of Thomas Edison and Ben Franklin, and you got all. The, I mean, that is amazing. That that what we what you just said, but it's like right? touches everything. Touches everything. It's amazing. It really is. A, it, it's amazing. <laughs> Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz told corporate employees to come back to the office three days a week. They were like, "What? What?" Uh, starting next month. The announcement comes just days after uh, Disney's Bob Iger told workers there they'd be coming back uh, to the office four days a week. We're Talking in private about what we're going to demand. Uh, I, I'm not sure what what have we decided. Um, two and a half is that good for you? Two, we'll, we'll, on Wednesday we'll work till uh, till 7:30. Is that, a, does that sound good? In a memo to staff, Schultz said hey, that three three days is reasonable. <laughs> Schultz said that badging data showed employees hadn't been uh, complying with a request from last September to work from the office 1 to 2 days a week. They weren't able to even show up for that. So then you wonder why we have problems in this country. Schultz said that the new 3-day in office policy was meant uh, to in his words, rebuild our connection to each other and synchronize teams and efforts. I, I don't even know where to start.
2: I think I read somewhere that this was just for people who lived within commuting distance um, of the office.
5: Everybody else can stay home it, that, 5 that's days. What I
2: didn't get. I mean this is it's a little unruly when you make a request and people don't follow it to come in one to two days a week.
5: Are there really zero sales tax in Florida? That's, I'm skipping back to that again, thinking about us again. Oh. So, could Florida? we? What about yeah. New Hampshire, my man? Either way, you know that we could come in once a week, drive down from New Hampshire, theoretically, and then stay up there. Right? Why don't we do
4: Florida in the winters? New Hampshire in the summers.
0: Cheese will be next. Coming up on Squawk Pod, Disney gears up for proxy battle. The board, the old made new again CEO Bob Iger, and one very determined activist investor, Nelson Peltz. New York Times columnist Jim Stewart on the Magic Kingdom's massive drama.
1: He said that he doesn't want to replace Iger, but he also said that he wants to, you know, strictly limit Iger to the two-year contract. I would say that's not exactly a vote of confidence.
6: From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive.
0: You're listening to Squawk Pod.
1: Up in Andrew, Q.
4: Good morning. Welcome back to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. We're live at the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin along with Becky Quick and Joe Kernan. Disney gearing up for a massive proxy fight with billionaire investor Nelson Peltz nearly two months after Peltz's try fund management took a roughly $800 million stake in the company, try confirming its nominated Peltz to Disney's board. But Disney playing defense, appointing Nike's Mark Parker as its new chairman, replacing Susan Arnold and forming a new succession planning committee for Bob Iger's departure. Uh, There's a lot going on here. Uh, The first piece of which is that, you know, when was Nelson Peltz in this stock? How how much did Disney really know? How much did that precipitate the Bob Chapek, Bob Iger move? Um, How worried are they about what Nelson Peltz could or could not do? He's, by the way, been on a whole number of boards that have actually had success. At some point, you might say to yourself, put him on the board. But he's
2: been opposed to Bob Iger being reinstated.
4: But he has been opposed to Bob Iger being reinstated, so what, So what is that about? Though I'm not sure. I mean, at the time, I think he, he I don't know if he was opposed. Was he opposed or was he just not, he was just a supporter of Bob Chapek? I don't remember exactly what the, what the wording was. So anyway, I, I don't know. And then Susan Arnold in the job for 15 years. She gets pushed out. They say it's because that it's, they say that's because that she had the job for 15 years and that they have a uh, like a lifetime, um, be, you know, tenure. Mm-hmm. But then the flip side is Bob Iger uh, ostensibly will have been on the board for 20 years. So I don't know. For more on what could be now a messy battle, is New York Times columnist and see contributor Jim Stewart, who I've been pressing to write uh, Disney War II, uh, the sequel. We'll see. Um, Jim, what, what do you make of this? What do you make of what's happening? And, and are you are you surprised that Disney's pushing back?
1: Well, I, 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 this is an extraordinary development. You know, I think it's worth remembering, as I wrote in Disney War One, that Iger came to power as part of a shareholder revolt, but that was led by the Disney family. Here we right. have an outsider, one of the most prominent activist investors with a you know very impressive track record coming in, demanding a seat on the board, wanting to have access to internal data on the company. No, I'm not surprised that Disney is, is pushing back, particularly at this delicate time when there's a board transition going on, when Iger has just returned, when they've had a disaster with the previous chief executive. Um, I think the issue, though, will be is where does he go now? He's been rebuffed by the board, but is he going to act actually set up a campaign and lead a shareholder fight? He's putting the pieces in place, which means this isn't going to go away anytime soon. We're just in round one.
4: And, you know, we were talking earlier, how much does Nelson Peltz like or dislike Bob Iger?
1: Well, he said that he doesn't want to replace Iger, but he also said that he wants to, you know, strictly limit Iger to the two-year contract that he just entered into when he agreed to come back. I would say that is, um, that's not exactly a vote of confidence. And there's a lot of skepticism that Iger can both sort of right the ship at Disney after what's going on in the last couple of years and find a successor, a task, um, which, you know, I should point out, it's really the board's job to find a successor, but he will certainly play a role. And they have failed, you know, monumentally at that uh in the recent past. So it's so just, but just, just lay, work out lay it
4: out for us. What is and cuz I don't think I've heard it fully articulated, the Nelson Peltz plan for Disney.
1: Well, all I all I know that he has said um in pri- pri- primarily is that they need to cut costs, they need to get more profitability. He wants to restore the dividend, um and he wants to limit Iger strictly to the 2 years that he has left. Well, you know, cut costs. Everybody I mean, Iger himself has said that he needs to cut costs. They the last quarter's one point five billion dollar loss in streaming is obviously not sustainable. Um, but you know, cost cutting at Disney in a creative industry at this juncture in the streaming wars, that's going to be very hard. I mean, the long-term strategy was to spend to achieve a dominant position in streaming, maybe along with a couple of others, then raise prices but you're not gonna secure a dominant position if you cut too much in spending. I'm sure, yes, some can be cut, Iger no doubt will cut, but serious cuts enough to restore a dividend at this moment, that is going to be very, very challenging. And um, Peltz has not outlined any detailed knowledge of the entertainment industry, the streaming world, or exactly where he would target those cuts.
2: Hey, Jim, if, if there is a proxy battle how much does that complicate what's already a pretty tricky job of trying to come back in and handle some big problems and some change in the way that Wall Street values streaming?
1: It's enormously complicated. Uh, I I mean, uh, from Iger's perspective, I would think the last thing he needs is either an activist shareholder breathing down his neck and wanting lots of information and demanding changes and let alone uh, a shareholder battle. But, you know, the Disney shareholder Base is bound to be pretty restless. I mean, you know, the stock performance has been terrible. The, uh, the the last quarterly earnings report shocked investors. The the market has turned. The sentiment has just turned with dizzying speed from you know focusing only on how many subscribers do you have to to profits and you know what's the average revenue per subscriber and where the profits coming from. That's been a very dramatic and recent change. Uh, that's more than enough to have to worry about without having somebody, as I said, meddling uh, from right. the outside.
4: And and what do you make of the Mark Parker ascension, the departure of Susan Arnold? Uh, obviously, there was this fifteen-year, uh, ten-year limit, um, and and she was up against it. Uh, but there were others that mentioned yesterday. The Bob Igers now been on the board for twenty years collectively. Um, you know, is she being held responsible for, for for decisions that were made earlier? She, of course, was a supporter, I believe, for at least some period of time, according to the reports of Bob uh, Chapek uh, over Bob Iger. It sounds like Mark Parker actually uh, was less a fan of Chapek, as was Mary Barra, uh, depending on who you're listening
1: to. Well, I think the um, you know, the board gets, a, in my view, a, a failing grade on the question of succession. And that's a that's a pretty significant responsibility. I mean, what do boards really do? The, the, the choice of the chief executive—if it's not the, the most important function they do—is certainly one of them. And not only um, did they have to get rid of Chepach, but bear in mind that it was just a few months ago that the board, led by Arnold, entered into another three-year contract contract with him. You know, so and the board has never really explained what changed um, in that period of time in, in their thinking to take such a drastic action, nor have they ever really explained why Chapek was, was selected in the first place. Uh, that still remains a mystery. It, was, it seemed very abrupt. It, you know, how well did they know Chapek? And what, what emerged, we've never really gotten an explanation from that. I personally would like to see the board address those issues, and I hope Parker will be more transparent as they undergo a search for either success jim
4: you you've covered so many different activist campaigns over the years and i i imagine a number of those that included nelson peltz he's uh joined many many a board some of which have uh proved to be quite successful uh with with him on it um sometimes uh as a result of him being on it probably uh, some maybe by coincidence others others haven't worked out as well when you think about all of the the challenges at play and, and issues dynamics with Disney. Do you think he can help them? Do you think it would actually it would be helpful for him to be on this board?
1: Well, I, 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 I I'm not sure. You know, his his specialty is management efficiency. He's not known for major restructuring. You know, I'm I'm not sure. He hasn't said anything, about, for example, about selling ESPN, but. The entertainment industry is going to be a challenge for him. And I don't—I haven't seen anything that he said so far, anything in his background. It's a really unique um, business, and I don't know that he has any particular expertise in hey, that.
2: Hey, Jim, the proxy is out now. They have, Tryon has filed the proxy. I'm just reading through it now. Um, but apparently in the background to the solicitation where you're going through it, He's been in this for a while. Nelson Peltz, met with Bob Chapek back on July 11th of this past year, talked about his long-term interest in Disney, his history of working successfully and collegially with companies. They had conversations that went through July on or about November 9th. He called Mr. Chapek to initiate a formal dialogue on November 12th. They went through. Um, There's again, I'm just reading through this, but then in December, when Iger was coming in, Iger informed Nelson Peltz that he couldn't speak to him without first talking to Mr. Gutierrez, um, called Mr. Iger, Peltz called Iger to check and see if there was a way for the two of them to be able to communicate. So this has been back and forth for, for a long time now. This is not a, necessarily a new position or something that Nelson Peltz is just doing. It sounds like he is frustrated um, with the back and forth on this. He says on November 22nd, he contacted Safra Katz, who informed him that she was not permitted to speak to Mr. Peltz. Um, so this looks like it's been a long time coming on this. Their their, com- their complaints are exactly what you had listed, that this is a stock that's un- underperformed on a 10-year basis, on a one-year basis, going back on all of these things, that it was not a successful um situation to set up for a new CEO coming in. There wasn't a successful search that was done on some of these things. So this sounds like it's a long boiling frustration on on, uh, Nelson Peltz's part, which is why he's going to be seeking a seat on the board.
4: Which to me, though, has always raised the question, which is why I I sort of asked, because I I didn't know the full timing of it, but I, I suspected it, of whether you believe, Jim, that when they gave the job to Bob Iger, they felt some pressure, either from Pelts clearly or either from Peltz yeah. or others at that point. Whether it wasn't just that they were unhappy with with the performance from Chapek but whether they actually thought that something else was um, amiss or a coming, if you will.
1: Yeah, well, this is. I think it's absolutely fascinating that there was this prolonged interaction between Chapek and Peltz that we didn't know about before. And I think you're absolutely right. A, they would have felt pressure with the in- Peltz involvement, but. What exactly was that pressure? What was going back and forth between Chapek and Peltz? And indeed, what is Peltz's relationship to Chapek now? You know, I I have no idea. But um, if there is one, if there was a conduit there that was established, that would be, you know, would be very interesting. Well, the other thing
4: we need to find out, which we don't know, is how much uh, Pop Chapek shared with the board of Disney that Nelson Peltz was in the stock. It looked right? like they were talking.
2: And so it, on November 15th, Mr. Chapek informed Mr. Peltz that they should not speak further about Mr. about Disney and that Mr. Peltz should instead speak to Christine McCarthy, the senior executive vice president and chief financial officer of the company. So the board must have known there was some back there. Back
1: well, and, and this goes there.
4: back to, you know, Christine was one of the sort of prime movers in getting Bob Iger back into the into the seat, right, Jim?
1: Yes, absolutely. And, you know, this is, <laughs> this is very... Interesting, because why would the board say that he should be communicating with the chief financial officer, but not the chief executive? There's no obvious answer to that. I mean, that the Trian was- Group.
2: November 23rd, just reading through. I mean, this is pretty fascinating stuff. The Triang Group representatives emphasized that the Triang Group did not want to engage in a lengthy and costly proxy fight, and that the Triang Group supported Mr. Iger's return to the board and his reappointment as CEO. The Disney representatives raised the idea of a mutually agreed upon independent director, not affiliated with the Triang Group, being added to the board. The Trium Group conveyed to Mr. Iger and the other Disney representatives that that was not their interest. They wanted direct board representation by a Trium partner. And then it looks like things broke broke down from there.
1: And remember that the independent director was the solution to the, you know, the Dan Loeb. Um... Interest in Disney, and he sort of accepted that. So they had that kind of template. But the fact that he refused it, I think, is significant. But I, you know, look, there are a lot of questions here, but that there was this prolonged interaction with an activist outside investor that led the board to indicate that he couldn't be talking to Chapek and he should start talking to the chief financial officer, and that he apparently was privy to the decision to remove Chapek and supported Iger's return. All of that is, (laughs) that is very very interesting and something we didn't know before it makes me wonder as you point out andrew just how much peltz's involvement had to do with the ouster of Chepek. you know which we've never really gotten a thorough or satisfying That's explanation right.
4: there because the way it's been presented at least uh in the press is is that this was a, a decision that happened very quickly happened by the board but happened with 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 Christine if you remember after after that uh, earnings call being so frustrated and upset about how things had, had happened and the public being upset that that that's what was the trigger but perhaps maybe
1: there was more to this right and also that the the, the creative forces at Disney had been grumbling were just discontent and you know we're, we're about to revolt against shapePE also feeding into that but this is putting a completely different perspective on that decision. All right.
4: Jim, I told you
1: there's a sequel here my friend. <laughs> it is a fascinating story and and it's going to be an ongoing fascinating story. Well, we'll have to have you back. We look forward to talking to you again. Thanks so much.
0: Next on SquawkPod, should ChatGPT be banned? The new AI tool has sparked an education debate. Yale University lecturer Joanne Littman penned a new piece for Time on how the writing generator could offer value. When Google
3: came out, there were literally academics saying that students would lose the ability to marshal information. When the personal pocket calculator came out, there were arguments that students would never learn how to use math.
6: That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills.
0: You're listening to Squawk Pod with Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew ross Orkin. Here's Becky.
2: The new artificial intelligence tool, ChatGPT, is raising questions about the role of AI in education. New York City schools are blocking the chatbot concerned that it could turn into the ultimate cheating machine. However, there's a new op-ed that's out in the Time, in Time Magazine arguing the opposite, saying that it should not be banned in schools. Joanne Lipman wrote the article. She is Yale University lecturer and a CNBC contributor. And Joanne, um, you know, when I first heard about it, I thought the same thing, like, oh my gosh, kids are gonna say, write my essay for me on X, Y, or Z, and it'll do the trick. Why do you think it's not going to be a problem?
3: Sure, thanks, Becky. Yeah, so I had the same initial reaction that you did. I teach a class at Yale, Um, and your immediate thought is, oh my gosh, these kids are gonna, you know, students can just go and tell it to write their essays. But in fact, as you think about it, it really is, it would be a terrible mistake for schools to ban chat GPT. And the reason is that our students are growing up in a world where artificial intelligence is intertwined with absolutely every aspect of their lives. And it's only going to get more so and by ignoring ChatGPT, by ignoring these emerging technologies, it's not gonna make them go away. What we actually need to do is to help these students understand how to use them, what are the perils, what are the flaws, um, how to use them responsibly because they are gonna inherit this world where they're gonna be leading the way. Uh, and, and so it's just completely unrealistic. You know, one of the things, Becky, that I was really struck by, you mentioned New York wants to ban this technology in schools. What I was really struck by is their reasoning was it's going to hurt critical thinking and problem solving skills. Yet, if we're trying to teach critical thinking and problem solving skills in a vacuum, uh, (laughs) not in the real world, it's not going to help these students. They actually need to understand how to interrogate and understand the flaws and understand how to use this stuff responsibly? That's a, a very valid argument. Um, to stay ahead of it, though,
2: as a professor, do you change what you are asking of students? Are you no longer asking for essays, or do you just ask ChatGPT to write an essay for you too, so you can see if anybody has asked the same question?
3: So, you know, ChatGPT, if you write it, if you ask it to write an essay and then you ask it again it will write two different essays on the same topic so it's really hard to to check plagiarism but yes there are so there are guardrails that are coming up in place so for example you know some teachers are now saying you have to write your essays by hand or you have to write them in class there's actually a college student who came up with a program that uh that claims to be able to um, to uh, to flag it if something has been written by ChatGPT. OpenAI, which owns the technology, has said that they're looking for things um, to mitigate it. Um, so there are certainly guardrails that we can put in place. Uh, but at the same time, I do think it's really important to understand and for students to understand what the flaws are. There's a lot of flaws. You know, we know ChatGPT... Um, is, is has information in it that is not correct. We know that it can be used to spread misinformation and hate speech. Students need to understand this stuff, and they need to understand uh, where the flaws are, so that they can figure out right. when it comes to their
4: Joanne, turn to run
6: the world. Long term, uh, do you, how to, do you how to Joanne, it. do you
4: see this long term being used literally to write entire papers? Or I think in the shorter term, you're going to see this technology get built in. I don't know if you're familiar with a program called Grammarly, for example. Yes. Um, which a lot of kids actually use to, just to have better grammar. It's, it's like a it's an improved version of what used to be spell check, if you will, on you know Microsoft Word. But when you know if you enter in you, know, if you bring in the kind of technology that ChatGDP has into it. It can actually not just improve the grammar, but can you know genuinely improve a sentence or two at a time. And it seems to me like that's where you're going to see it do things that are actually pretty extraordinary, that are both good in certain ways, because it will make the papers better, but bad in other ways, because I just don't know whether students, therefore, will actually learn this stuff.
3: So, oh, Andrew, you're, you are picking up on, I think, the most important point here, which is that Ultimately, where these technologies hopefully are leading is to be a resource, not to be a substitute for learning, but to be a resource. And think about this historically. We have seen hysteria in the past over Google. When Google came out, there were literally academics saying that students would l- lose the ability um, to marshal information. When Wikipedia came out, it was banned. Go even further back, when the personal pocket calculator uh came out there were arguments that students would never learn how to use math True. and what instead um <laughs> what instead has happened is that all of these tools have turned into exactly that tools resources but not a substitute for learning and chatgpt if used correctly and rolled out Uh, in a a responsible way could turn out to be the same thing. And by the way, you know, Microsoft, you guys have been talking about, obviously Microsoft thinking about an investment in it. If that were to happen, if they were to put their $10 billion into it, and uh, you could actually see down the line some of this functionality um, being used within Word, within Outlook and some of the other programs.
5: Can you do long division, Joanne?
3: I can. Can you, Joe?
5: Might be able to do that. What if I gave you a square root of something? No that way. <laughs> oh, you definitely can't do any. I can't. In, you can't do a, a derivative or calc, a, integra, integrated calculus, right? You know, you know, I
3: used to. I was a very excellent calculus student. I, I loved will tell ca- you back in the day, cool. But don't <laughs> ask me I to. Do it. It. I haven't done it. In,
5: God shows God. you how important it is in, in life. I, I think calculators are fine. You just got to learn how to use a calculator.
2: Unless you're an astronaut, and all the, all the buttons you can. Tr- all the all the, num- all the computers go. Oh,
5: we're over. Joanne, oh my thank god! You. Dun, dun, dun.
0: <laughs> Lots to think about. That's the podcast for today. Thank you for listening, as always. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin weekday mornings on CNBC at 6am Eastern. Remember to follow Squawk Pod wherever you're listening now and to share episodes you like with your friends, your colleagues, your family, your neighbor. We're available for free anywhere you listen to podcasts. We'll meet you back here tomorrow.
1: We are clear. Thanks guys.